All right. Thank you for joining us this morning. We're going to be uh, heading to the end of our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We started uh, this series in the Gospel of Matthew in uh, December of uh, 2020, and then we've been in in it all of last year, and then we're going to be wrapping it up uh, next Sunday on, on Resurrection Sunday. We're going to be looking at Matthew 28, which is the story of the resurrection. Timing worked out great. Um, and this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 45 through 66. It's kind of a, a strange situation since we've just been going through the book of Matthew, and we, you know, take just a chunk at a time. We're not, we're not flying through it. Um, and as a result, you know, today is, is technically in the liturgical calendar is Palm Sunday. But we talked about Palm Sunday weeks and weeks ago. We've been in this Passion Week for a, a long time, for a couple of months here, where we've been walking through these last couple days of Jesus' life. And today, we're even looking at, at the cross part two. When we, when we start this morning, we're gonna, Jesus is already on the cross. Um, and so we're really kind of moving through this slow. So I do want to say that when we get to Good Friday um, this week, we're going to be looking at a different passage entirely. We're not going to be in Matthew because we've been, we've been in Good Friday for the last couple of weeks, um, really. And so, uh, so we're going to get into this here. We're looking first at verses 45 through 56. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb, after, his, after this resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So we pick this up. It's, it's the sixth hour. The sixth hour, which is noon. And for, uh, for the time period, um, the Israelites used what we call a, a relative hour. Um, we talked about this when we were back looking at some parables. But they, they used a relative hour. So, so the sixth hour was when the sun was directly overhead. Because there was always, whatever time of year, 12 hours of daytime and 12 hours of nighttime. That's how they counted it. They counted it from, from sunrise to noon. There's... That, that's from, from the first hour to the sixth hour, and then six to, to midnight. That's when the sun's gone. There's always, always 12 hours of daylight, always 12 hours of nighttime. So in the summer, days, hours are longer. In the winter, they're shorter. Uh, and, and at daytime hours, and then flip-flop for nighttime hours. So at this point, it's noon to three. So it's from the sixth hour to the ninth hour is noon to three, the hottest part of the day. 
right? The time when the sun is most prominent in the sky, when it's directly overhead until three, that's it's been out for a long time, that's when it starts to heat up. You know, this week we had a little preview of summer. You know what I'm talking about, right? You get that time, is this in the sun. And, that, and that's what should be happening here. That's why it's notable that he says there was darkness over the land from noon to three. And when Matthew points that out, he's not saying, you know, it was cloudy. That's not what he's saying. It's not notable if it's cloudy. It's cloudy all the time. He's saying it was dark. It was like nighttime. It was at nighttime. Because something supernatural, something significant was happening. Something was changing. And in many ways, it was literally the darkest time in human history. Jesus cries out about the ninth hour. He cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, you might think that's kind of a strange thing that you have some, you know, foreign language in there. All of a sudden that has to be translated. Like, isn't the whole thing translated? When we're reading in English, it's all translated. So why not just translate all of it? Well, that is unique in this, in the gospel of Matthew that, that phrase, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, because that's Aramaic, and Matthew was writing almost all in Greek, because that was the most commonly used language in the written form of the time. But in, in Israel, most people spoke Aramaic if they were Jews. Most, most of the Jews spoke Aramaic. And so he's recording Jesus' actual words. He's recording his actual words, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He translates it into the Greek in the original language. And this is the moment, this is the moment, and we can maybe even say these three hours of darkness are the moment when God forsakes his son. When he says this, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not like the Psalms, for example. So if we think, look at the Psalms, look at a lot of David's Psalms, a lot of the Psalms are David talking himself uh, through his deep emotional problems, right? Through his depression and anxiety and worry and all these things. He's talking himself through them. He's going, my soul, why are you downcast within me? Hoping God, he's pointing himself back to God. He's doing some soul talk, talking himself back to God. So he'll even start with, God, why have you forsaken me? But by the end of the Psalm, he's like, I will put my hope in the Lord. He's realizing that God hasn't forsaken him through the, through the course of the Psalms. That's why they're so great for us because we have emotional problems. Right? We're emotional people. David was an emotional guy. David dealt with crazy emotional stuff, really in, intense periods of depression and anxiety. He dealt with all this stuff and he just constantly talking himself back to God, back to, to hope in God. But here, Jesus, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not that hypothetical, I feel like you've forsaken me. It's God has actually forsaken him. Because in this moment, God the Father does forsake the Son. Turns his back on him. He turns his back on his Son here in this moment. This is the moment that was more painful than any physical pain of crucifixion for Jesus. It had never happened before that God the Father was separated from God the Son, that he turned his back on him, literally forsake him. Jesus had, in coming to earth, 
set aside his use of his divine attributes, set aside his divine privileges, but he had never been separated from the Father. The Father was always with him. But in this moment, God turns his back on his son. And this is the moment where Jesus experiences close to what we would call hell. Close to what we would call hell, because that is the definition. When we talk about in the end, when Jesus comes back and, and some people go to live with him in the new heavens and the new earth, and others are cast out, cast into the lake of fire, cast out of his presence. The problem with that, the reason that doesn't work, because you run into people all the time who are like, oh yeah, I'll probably go into hell because I like to party, man. And you know what? That's fine with me because I'll go down there and we'll party. You're right, you know, those people. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, the problem with that is that hell doesn't have any of the party materials. Doesn't have any of the supplies because everything good is God's. Everything good is God's. And, and your separation, that, that hell, that, that separation from God is a separation from all of his goodness. Everything good that he has. So that's why we talk about Everyone, everyone who's still alive on earth, everyone who's living, no matter how evil they are, no matter how bad things are in any place, everyone is experiencing some amount of God's goodness because every breath that we take is good, right? Everything that we eat that tastes good, that comes from God. Everything that we have that is good comes from him. So the fact that that we still experience some of God's goodness here and now is God's mercy. It's God withholding his judgment because we've rebelled against him. We've rebelled against him. He's allowing us still to, to live here, allowing us still to accept some of his goodness because he has a plan for our redemption. He has a plan for our redemption. But it doesn't mean that it's okay. It doesn't mean that our rebellion is okay. It doesn't mean there needs to be some kind of solution. So imagine, imagine if you had a, 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 a family living in a house, right? And, and, and just, to, I mean, none of you can imagine this, but imagine you had a, a rebellious child. Right, I know none of you can imagine it, but imagine you did. And, and you may, for a time, while, while they're still living in your house, maybe they're even 18, even they, they could move out, right? They maybe are, are being rebellious, doing all kinds of crazy things that you wouldn't don't want them doing, right? You may decide to let them continue to live in your house, but you may say, hey, we gotta work out a plan. I'm gonna give you some time here, but you gotta change your behavior. We gotta do something about this because you cannot continue to live here if, you do the, if you're continuing to live this way. You're gonna continue doing these things, continue rebelling against the things that I, I live with because, you know, I mean, not only are you hurting me, you're hurting your siblings and you're breaking the house, whatever, like, you're going to come up with something. But they may still be able to experience some of your goodness, experience some of the benefits of living in your house until that day where you say, no, you're out. Okay? And that's a microcosm of what we're talking about. That we're still living in God's house, running amok as human beings. We're still experiencing the benefits that we have of doing that. But what we see here is that eventually that is going to stop. Eventually that grace, that mercy is going to stop. But God provides a way 
for us to be reconciled to him. He provides a way for us to be changed. He provides a way for us to come to him. And it's through the blood of Jesus, through what Jesus does here on the cross, where God turns his back on his son. He forsakes his son. He allows his son to to suffer that separation, to suffer that spiritual death that we deserve. Physical and spiritual death, that's what Jesus suffers. The people watching think that Jesus is calling out for Elijah because it's what somebody might do, a good Jewish man might do at that time, might call out for Elijah because an Eli, Eli, that sounds like short for Elijah. And again, Jesus is suffering on the cross, so he's probably not pronouncing things really clearly. They think he's calling out for Elijah. Some of them offer him some sour wine. Others say like, well, let's see, maybe Elijah's going to come. Jesus cries out a second time and yields up his spirit. And we don't know from, Matthew doesn't record it, but in John's gospel, he records that Jesus cries out, it is finished. It is finished is that second cry that he makes. With a lot of voices, it is finished, and then he dies. He yields up his spirit. And it is at this moment that our salvation is accomplished. Jesus had paid the price, spiritual and physical death. He paid the price. It was done. It was finished. Because his death is what pays for. His death is what atones for our sin. His death is what pays, makes it possible for us. It's the cost that we should have paid is our death. Is a separation from God forever. That's the wages of our sin. That's what we get for rebelling against our creator. But Jesus says it is finished because he paid the price. He yields up his spirit. He dies. He's paid the price. The resurrection is just the receipts. It's just the proof that it actually worked. The resurrection matters but the death is what pays for our sins. The resurrection is proof that Jesus successfully defeated Satan's sin and death. But we see it here, that this is when it is complete, because what happens at that moment, what happens at the moment of his death, at the moment of his death, the temple curtain tears in two. There's an earthquake. An earthquake that's so bad that rocks split in two. Tombs are opened. Right? So they, they didn't bury people in the ground, in, in the earth, because there's a lot of rock. There's a lot of rock in Jerusalem. They couldn't really do that. So they would make tombs with, out of stone. And so there would be, you know, you'd have your like, family tomb. You'd have a big stone rolled in front of it to seal, the door, seal it up. And then when somebody else in your family died, you'd roll the stone back, add a body, roll it back. That was how they buried people. So the tombs here are open, and some dead saints are resurrected. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Let's think first about this torn curtain. So the curtain that Matthew speaks about is the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies in the temple. So the holy place was a certain room in the temple, and this is the same in the tabernacle. If you remember when we were studying Exodus, we talked about the tabernacle. You had the holy place, but then within the holy place, you have the holy of holies, separated by a curtain. And when we talk about a curtain, it's not like a thin curtain that you buy at Target. It's like a thick woven curtain, probably this thick. 
thick, thick curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Because the Holy of Holies was where the presence of God dwelt among Israel. It's where the Ark of the Covenant sat, and it's where God's presence literally dwelled in Israel. First in the tabernacle, then in the temple. And this curtain separated it, and they were only, you'd only go in once a year, and only one person would go in, the high priest, whoever was serving as high priest that year, whatever man among the priests was serving as high priest, he would go through a, a purification ritual, and then he would enter the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of Israel. Only once a year, sprinkle blood on that mercy seat to make atonement for Israel's sins. But it was so dangerous to enter God's presence in that way that you may not have be, if you were hiding things, if you were holding back, if you were not pure, if you had not purified yourself, if you had not made yourself holy, if you're not being honest with God, you could die in the presence of God if you went in there. So tradition has it. We don't, it's, not, it's not in Scripture, but extra-biblical evidence states that, um, that they would actually tie a rope to the leg of the high priest that went in there. And the reason for that being, if he died in the, present, in, in the presence of God, if he, going to the presence of God caused him to just drop dead, they didn't want to send anybody else in there. They would pull him on out. Grab that rope and pull him on out. So imagine you're a priest in the temple, and there's other things to do in the holy place. There's you know, candles to light and all these different things, bread, the bread of the presence to tend, and all these things. And imagine it's Friday, and Jesus is on the cross, and it's, the Sabbath is about to begin. And so you're making all these preparations, doing last-minute things. You're in the, in the holy place. All of a sudden, there's an earthquake, and that curtain tears in two. That curtain behind which you've probably never gone because nobody went back there. This wasn't like, this wasn't like a symbol, purely symbolic thing and, nobody, and people were like, well, yeah, I mean, technically we're only supposed to go back there once a year, but like, you know, you got to clean and stuff. No, no one went back there. This wasn't a symbolic thing. This was real. People did not go back there. And all of a sudden you see this thick curtain tear in two. Imagine how terrified you'd be of what has just happened. What, there's an earthquake and now this curtain that separates the presence of God from me, I'm now exposed. You'd be terrified. But this curtain tearing symbolizes, symbolizes the fact that the barrier between man and God had been literally torn in two. It's symbolic and it's literal. The, the barrier between man and God has been broken. There is now no longer separating anything from us and God. The temple and the sacrificial system are now obsolete. Right? It tears in two as a symbol that, that they can now enter the presence of God and go to him face to face. But it also tears in two because it's useless now. The sacrificial system is no longer the system. It's no longer how sin will be atoned for. Sin has been atoned for once and for all on the cross. Jesus has paid for sin, past, present, future, the sacrificial system is useless anymore. So that curtain tears in two. There's also an earthquake. The earth-shaking change that took place in this moment is emphasized by the fact that the earth literally shook. 
right? Everything is changing, and it literally, it, it's manifested in the creation itself by the earth shaking and rocks splitting in two. Everything has changed. This is the biggest moment in history. The peace with God is possible. Forgiveness is possible. Righteousness is possible in a way that it had never been before because the price had been paid. We also see a, a pre-fulfillment of the resurrection. So pre-fulfillment is something that we see in Scripture sometimes in which um, you see a prophecy is made. There's a lot of Old Testament prophecies where there's a prophecy made and then it's fulfilled in some small way. Like it's not that big of a thing. It's kind of a small thing. And then later, like Jesus fulfills it fully or John the Baptist does or whatever. There's a bigger fulfillment. You go, oh, that's obviously what it was talking about, even though there was a, a somewhat of a way that it was fulfilled here. That's what we see here. It says after Jesus' resurrection, some of these dead saints walk out of the tombs. This earthquake moved the, the tombs around, moved the, the stones that blocked the doorways so that when Jesus was resurrected, a bunch of other saints were resurrected as well. A bunch of other people who had died in the Lord are resurrected as well. And they appear to people in Jerusalem. Why does Matthew provide us this fact? Because again, he's saying, go see for yourself. Not to us, but again, this was never written to us directly. He's writing to his contemporaries. He's writing to people who lived in the years after Jesus rose from the dead. At the years after these events, people are still alive. He's saying, you want to know if this happened? Go ask people in Jerusalem. They'll remember. They'll remember when dead people walked among the streets rose from the dead and walked among the streets. I remember this earthquake. They'll remember the darkness over the land. He's saying, you've got time. Go investigate it. These are the, the clues that we have that this is not a myth. That these are things that actually happened. There was time for these claims to be investigated and the means provided in which they could do it. But it's a pre-fulfillment in that <clears throat> at the second coming, everyone will rise again. When Jesus comes again, everyone will be resurrected and face judgment. The guards have a, a realization at, at this moment, which you can imagine. I mean, there's been three hours now in the middle of the day when it's dark. You got to think that when, when that sun went away, when that sun went dark at noon, that those guards must have been thinking like, this is different. Something strange is going on. This isn't the same as our normal crucifixion days. This is an odd day at work for them. Sky goes dark. And then this guy calls out, it is finished. He dies. And then, boom, giant earthquake. That would that'd be pretty scary for you. Right? And what they realize at this moment is, I think that this guy was who he said he was. I think that Jesus might have been who he said he was. He was the Son of God. He says, truly, this was the Son of God. And what a moment of dread they must have had at that moment. The, the, these guards realizing, oh, wow. He was the Son of God. We crucified him because he said he was the Son of God, because he said he was the king. We crucified him for treason. But he was that's got to be a terrifying moment for them because it's too late. He's dead. And they are now accomplices in this crucifixion, in this false uh, execution. 
And again, again, this provides us some kind of a, a pre-fulfillment. Kind of a pre-fulfillment because when Jesus returns, there will be others who recognize in that moment, those who have denied him will realize to their horror that he is God. Last, we see here that there were many women following Jesus as well. The disciples had all deserted Jesus, fearing for their lives. They'd scattered, they'd fled. But Matthew notes here that women who had accompanied him from Galilee, meaning from the beginning of his ministry, these women had gone with him, facilitating his ministry, ministering to him. They'd been helping him all along the way. They stuck with him all the way to the end. They witnessed the crucifixion firsthand. Their faithful ministry partners facilitating all that Jesus had done. And because of the culture, they're mostly left out of the narrative. They're mostly left out of the narrative because of the culture at the time. But Matthew notes that here that they were the most faithful. His inclusion here and mention of them is notable because, again, it's not something anybody writing at the time would have done, include women in the story. But he notes here that they are the most faithful they're with him to the very end. We'll look next here at verses 57 through 61. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So now we have a rich man, a really unique character enters the story. Joseph of Arimathea. Who was he? Well, he's wealthy, but he's not only wealthy, he has position. In Mark and Luke's accounts of this story, we find out that he was actually a member of the Sanhedrin. Is a member of the court that, that, that tried, the Supreme Court of the Jews, that tried Jesus and found him guilty, but he was a dissenting member of the court. He was a follower of Jesus. Unique. It's unique to find a man of wealth and privilege and position, power, that would follow Jesus because Jesus wasn't into those things. And yet he recognizes Jesus' authenticity. He recognizes that Jesus has has this stuff right. And so he's following Jesus. He descends to the crucifixion. He just says he's not guilty, but he's over, over, outnumbered and overwhelmed. But now he uses his, his wealth and position to go to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body, ask if he can give him a proper burial. And, <clears throat> and you consider, why, why, is, why are these details included? Now, that's something that, that you can ask all the time when you read anything, is like, why is the author choosing to write this stuff down? So why is Matthew choosing to tell us these things? This is Matthew's death certificate. There are people that try to claim that Jesus wasn't actually dead. Or there, there are people that try to, they make that claim. They say, sure, Jesus was on the cross, but he never died. But those are, those, those, those are, are baseless claims. Matthew provides here the name of the man who shrouded and buried him, a person of significance, not one of the 12, 
a man of prominence in the community and standing with the Roman government. He had this standing to be able to go to Pilate and ask for the body. He goes to Pilate and asks for the body. And, and again, Pilate is involved. Pilate sees Jesus' dead body. So there's a government, there's government proof here. There's, there's paperwork, essentially. There's a record of Jesus' death. He also provides us two witnesses to Jesus' burial. The two Marys who were there at the cross when he dies, they're there to watch him be buried. They're just sitting opposite the tomb watching his body go in with him to the end, witnesses to his burial. The fact is that Jesus died and was buried, which are crucial facts. That Jesus died and was buried are crucial truths because the resurrection is only significant if he's really dead and buried. He's only significant if he's really dead and buried. But Jesus died and was buried. This is the fact that Matthew is trying to drive home. That Jesus was actually dead. Because, first of all, the, the Roman government knew what it was doing when it came to crucifixion. Right? We, when we think of crucifixion, we only think of Jesus. Or we only think of Jesus being crucified. But that's not true. Crucifixion was a common means of executing criminals in Jesus' day. The Roman government used crucifixion liberally to execute people. It was not the only time. And so for them, it would be, this is why, by the way, like the cross didn't become a symbol of Christianity. It wasn't something that people who were Christians marked themselves with. They, um, they used a fish um, because it's an acronym for Jesus, Jesus Christ. Um, I forget exactly, exactly an acronym, but it was an acronym. So they used a fish. They would mark their stuff with a fish because it would have been weird for them to mark themselves with a cross because it's an execution tool. Can you imagine, um, you know, like you get a little, make a little gold noose and then wear that around your, around your neck. Little, little gold, little nooses hanging from your ears. I mean, we are pretty close to Placerville, so you might do it. But, but I think most people that would think it was pretty weird if you wore a little, little electric chair around your neck. Right? That'd be weird. That's why people didn't do it for a long time. It wasn't until crucifixion went out of fashion that we started using the cross as a symbol of, of Christianity. And we see here that the Roman government is crucifying people all the time. They know when these guys are dead. They're not taking people off the cross who aren't dead. They know what they're doing. They crucify people all the time. They know when someone's dead and alive. We also see that Pilate was a witness to Jesus' dead body. That a man of significance paid for his burial. These were people that you could go and ask. The reason, the reason that Matthew doesn't just say Jesus' buddy Joe buried him is because he wants you to know. He wants people that he's writing to. When, when Matthew's writing all this, the people he has in mind are his contemporaries. The people that were alive when he's writing. Those are he, who he's thinking about is going to read it. And he wants them to know. You want to know who buried Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea. Go ask him. He paid for the burial. And he kind of got ripped off because it didn't last. Right? Like, go ask him about it. You want to ask? Go ask Pontius Pilate. Go ask him. 
He's giving you names. He's giving you people that are significant that you can ask. He's not just anybody. People witnesses his burial. And again, he says, Mary Magdalene. Mary, mother of Joseph and James. Again, go ask them. They'll tell you. They saw him, his body go in that tomb. They saw it happen. They were there. Go ask them. And there was a significant amount of time for these claims to be investigated. There was a significant amount of time for these things to be investigated. Those, those who carried the story were not wealthy or powerful and never became wealthy or powerful as a result. We'll talk about this more next week. But as we consider, we, we can see in, in this passage, in these passages, these last couple chapters of Matthew, that Matthew is very concerned that people are going to think that this is a setup. That people are going to think this is a scam. And so he provides details. But one of the things that, that he doesn't even necessarily point to that, that is really important as we consider this is if it was going to be fake, if it was going to be set up, then there's got to be a motive. There's got to be a motive. And, and the guys who carried the message, the, the 11 apostles, the guys who carried the message, like, what, what do we think that their scam was? Like, hey, listen, we'll tell everybody that Jesus rose again, and, and then we'll go tell everybody that this paid for our sins. And then if we tell them that, most of the people are going to hate us a lot. And definitely the people that are in power are going to hate us, and they're going to run us out of town all the time. We're going to have to live on the run. We could get to live on the run. And eventually they'll catch us, sure. And we'll be pretty young, and they'll, they'll kill us. Good plan. Like, that's no, there's no motive. There's no motive. It's not for hundreds and hundreds of years until people start make, trying to make money or gain power from Christianity. That certainly happens in history. It's rampant and really makes me mad. It happens to this day. But not the guys that started it. Not the guys that started it. <coughs> we'll look lastly here at verses 62 through 66. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb be made secure until the end the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and, and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and set, setting a guard. So here the Pharisees are mentioned specifically um, all through this, this narrative when Jesus is being tried and all that, it keep, Matthew keeps saying that the elders and the chief priests of the Sanhedrin, that these are the guys who are, chart, are trying him. But now he says the Pharisees are going to Pilate. We haven't heard from the Pharisees in a while. They're among those guys. They're part of the, the Sanhedrin. They're some of the elders and chief priests are Pharisees. But here, Matthew says the Pharisees go to Pilate and say, we remember this prophecy that he said. We remember this prophecy where he said he was going to rise again in three days. And what they're referring to is the fact that Jesus had told them specifically that they would receive the sign of Jonah. They asked him for a sign, and they said, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. We'll see it, one, one example in Matthew chapter 12. He actually says it to them twice, but one in Matthew 12, 
38 through 40, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He told them before, and they remember, now they're afraid. They say that they're afraid specifically that the people are going to try to steal, that the disciples are going to try to steal Jesus' body and claim that he was resurrected. And so Pilate says, okay, you can have a guard of soldiers. Well, that's a specific unit. A guard of soldiers is made up of 16 trained Roman soldiers. 16. 16 Roman soldiers. I know that all the flannel graphs and cartoons that you've watched Shows two soldiers, that's 16. 16 Roman soldiers guarding a dead body. A dead body who, and whose friends, by the way, the guy, the guy, people who might steal the big threat are 11 guys who are mostly fishermen. You got a tax collector in there. Some other common kind of guys in there. Not soldiers, They've got two swords, and so far all they've managed to do is chop off one ear. So it's an overkill. It's overkill. You probably could have one Roman soldier guard the tomb, and these guys wouldn't have been able to get past him. They're not trained soldiers. They don't know what they're doing with weapons. The idea that they would be able to overcome, that 11 of Jesus' disciples would be able to overcome 16 Roman soldiers to steal Jesus' body is laughable. There's just no possible way. We see here that Pilate has an interest in this as well. He doesn't want this to continue. He was complicit now in Jesus' death. He needs it to end. He needs it to end. It seems strange, uh, maybe, that Matthew would make note of this, this suspicion by the Pharisees because it is precisely what many non-believers claim about Jesus. Many people now, interestingly here, they're so like, well, we're worried that, this is, that they're going to steal his body and then claim that he was resurrected. And now we have people who say, well, that's the other explanation is that, that they just stole Jesus' body. But it, it, we see here that what, the reason Matthew is noting this, the reason Matthew is saying they were worried about it He's telling us that, they, that the, the Roman government and the Pharisees were concerned about Jesus' body being stolen, and so they tried to prevent it. It makes it way less likely that that could have been the case. The fact that it was a foreseen possibility makes it far less likely that it would actually take place. Instead, we see that his, he was guarded, meaning the only way that he could get out was from the inside. Had to be an inside job. A faked resurrection just makes no sense because, again, the disciples did not profit off of the resurrection story. Their post-resurrection efforts, their proclamation of Jesus as the risen Lord did not lead to them gaining any notoriety, did not get them, lead to them getting wealthy, did not lead to anything but their, only, their own deaths. We'll consider that more next week. We'll wrap up with this. Three takeaways for today's message. Number one, recognize the cost of your salvation. That Jesus 
Jesus' death on the cross is not just a physical death, it's a spiritual death. It's a separation between God, the Father, and the Son. But he was willing to do it for you. He was willing to do it because he loved you. He wanted to make a way for you to be forgiven, to find grace and peace. Next, model the humble faithfulness of Jesus' female followers. They're highlighted in this passage, and rightly so, that they're with him to the end. They're with him to the end. They're kind of in the background the whole time. They're facilitating his ministry. They're doing all these things to make it possible for Jesus to go out and do ministry. And they stay with him to the end. They stay with him, and they don't really lose hope, right? They're, they're there with him when he dies, but then they follow, and they watch him be buried. And we'll see next week that they're there to be the witnesses of his resurrection. And last, believe that Jesus truly died and was buried. It's crucial that we believe that, and it's reasonable that we believe that. It's a reasonable thing to believe based on the evidence that we have. Something had to have happened. The whole world changed, and the guys that carried the story were not significant. The guys who carried the story were common they were not educated, they were not wealthy, they were not powerful. They were common people. The, the idea that they would change their whole lives and risk their lives for the sake of this story only makes sense if it's true. Otherwise, it doesn't reach, it doesn't reach me, it doesn't reach you. I'll pray here in just a minute. And then uh, we'll take communion together. We'll sing one final song. And then if you'd like prayer for anything, we'll have a prayer team that'll be available right over here after their service. They'd love to pray for you. Would you bow with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the facts that Matthew puts down, the uh, evidence and the investigation that he did, and the fact that he left people with a chance to, to see for themselves. And God, while we can't go and investigate these claims the way that his original readers could, we know that ultimately it's always about faith and always something that we have to believe. And so I pray that you would help our belief, that, that we would say, like, like the, the man Jesus asked if he thought he could heal him, that, that we would say, I believe, help my unbelief. Because we do have doubts, we do have struggles but we know that you are with us through it all. That you loved us so much that you went even to the cross for us. So I pray that we would rest in that, that we would humbly serve you like these women, that we would humbly follow you like these women who followed Jesus from Galilee. Pray all these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.